I have this unique role um, with, with CBF North Carolina, which I get to work alongside clergy and churches that are in time of transition. And one of the things I find myself coaching search teams on right now, uh, especially as budgets become uh, tighter, um, is to think of the intangible things that you can give your ministers to, to care for them, um, things that we learned from the pandemic. And so, um, you know, I just actually met with the search team last night and I actually told them, you know, your personal handbook probably says you can give your minister two, three weeks of vacation. How about six? You know, and, and what it might cost you is $150 honorarium to pay for somebody to come in and preach on a Sunday morning. Um, but imagine the self-care practices that can be put into place. That doesn't mean they need to take all six weeks off in a row. You know, you, you've got to negotiate those kinds of things. But what are maybe some other uh, things churches can do to better care for their ministers as a result of the pandemic? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Crump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Eileen Campbell-Reed. She is a visiting professor of pastoral theology and care at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She is the founder and host of Three Minute Ministry Mentor, along with the co-director of the Learning Pastoral Imagination Project. She's authored several books, including Anatomy of a Schism and the State of Clergy Women in the U.S. Eileen, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much, Andy. I'm delighted to be talking with you today. I will have you know, and I know we talked about this last time we were together, I have been humming, come on, Eileen, all morning long, knowing we were very, <laughs> and I'm like, I, I actually caught myself doing it. I was like, why am I singing that song? Oh, yeah, this morning's the Eileen Campbell Reed interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was popular right when I was uh, in the latter years of high school. So I've heard it, sung it, danced to it. <laughs> <laughs> and people bring it up to me all the time. So, uh, unfortunately, I think a review of the song it maybe isn't that great uh, lyrics right. wise. I, I don't no. <laughs> know if we want to glorify necessarily the lyrics as much as the tune of the song. So, it's very danceable. That's true, but the lyrics are a little, <laughs> yeah, like that's not. I hope that's not exactly my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very very problematic. So, um, right. Well, you you obviously do a lot. Uh, tell us, you know, we're going to get into uh, your latest book and uh, some of the report coming out of your work, but I'd love to learn more for our audience uh, as far as the, the three-minute ministry mentor. What is it and, and what do you hope to, to do through it? Absolutely. Well, it's a good connecting point with the, the book Pastoral Imagination that came out last year because uh, taking a few steps back, um, when I, working with Chris Sharon in uh, the starting in 2009, wanted to understand how it is people learn the practice of ministry. What is that trajectory from, you know, the time they're called, have a sense of vocation through uh, seminary training, through um, those first years in ministry? How, what's the learning curve? What does that look like? And how do people embody something we would, we call a pastoral imagination? And so we 
started the study. We started interviewing people in our cohort. We followed through with them every few years and re-interview them. And we wrote a lot of academic articles and uh, a long report about at the five-year mark of the study. But we weren't doing enough, in my view, to get what we were learning into the hands and hearts of people who actually do ministry. So in 2018, several different things came together in my work life and in my sort of my own vision for what we were doing. And I just decided it was time to launch Three Minute Ministry Mentor because I wanted to share what we were learning in the research. I want to support ministers. That's been something important to me from the time I was in seminary um, because I was involved with Baptist women in ministry. And so I've, I've been a supporter, friend, mentor, coach to women in ministry and men as well for a very long time. And so Three Minute Ministry Mentor is a fuller expression of that. Uh, we have a whole variety of ways that we like to say we inform and inspire the practice of ministry. Uh, even the idea of ministry as a practice is new to the, the larger world and, and not new like in my lifetime, but well, my lifetime, but not my life as a scholar. Uh, it's new in the sense of being sort of reimagined ministry as a practice starting in the 90s and then into the early 2000s. And there were uh, certainly many treatises and all kinds of uh, discipline manuals and whole entire church councils about what priests and pastors and ministers should do and how they should do it and what they what their work should be like. Um, but often priesthood was thought of like an identity and not much about something people learned. You were born to be a priest. And um, with the Protestant Reformation, there were major changes, both in Protestantism and Catholicism, about how ministry and priestly duties and all the rest were understood. More education became important, um, and how one lived in one's vocation became more central. Uh, instead of just sort of, uh, well, you're in a family that produces a lot of priests, and so we're going to bring you into the priesthood. <laughs> you're, you're one of the designated ones. And, and when vocation became something that was both communal and personal um, in the thinking of Martin Luther and others that followed, um, it really turned us toward an expansion of who could be a leader in the church. Uh, it was no longer limited to just uh, celibate men, but uh, the expansion of uh, ministry to many people also gave us more of a chance to think about gifts and calling and eventually in the end of the last century, ministry as a practice. And so that's what Chris Sharon and I have been studying. How do we understand that ministry as a practice? And then pastoral imagination is a way of thinking about the capacity it takes, an embodied, relational, emotional, spiritual, and integrative capacity for how one does that practice and learns it over time. So all that long uh, trip through the, the ages there was to say three-minute ministry mentor is trying to bring forward these ideas and then many discrete aspects of how one learns in practice. Uh, and that's what I wanted to get into the lives and thinking of ministers for sure and also the people who teach them like me, theological educators, so that we would all, all be thinking more intentionally and deliberately about how we're educating in that little short window of time, three, four years of time when we're educating people for the practice of ministry. How can we do that better? So that's kind of my subplot always uh, as well. well. I'd love for us to spend some time in, in your latest book, Pastoral Imagination. This book invites readers to consider the practice of ministry to life. Um, you wrote, as I complete this book in the spring of 2020, the entire world is upside down and burning. We are facing more waves of a coronavirus pandemic with no vaccine and no clear end in sight. The number of COVID-19 cases have surpassed 2 million and deaths keep climbing in the United States and globally. The number of deaths have re re released the massive disparities, revealed the massive disparities in our country. Take us back to that moment. That moment you've been uh, writing this amazing resource for ministers and then this world altering thing happened. 
Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> the way I launched Three Minute Ministry Mentor was in the in the fall of 2018. Well, Advent actually. So we're at the four year mark. We're having our fourth birthday right now. When I launched it, I knew that I uh, would be doing a whole year of episodes with three minute videos, uh, blogs, and and those videos were turned into podcasts as well. And so I knew that first year of material would become this book that we're talking about now that's called Pastoral Imagination. And <clears throat> so I even had a you know conversation with my uh, with Scott Tunseth, who became my editor at Fortress. Uh, he knew what was coming and he followed along with us. And it was really a, a, a full process of thinking about sharing this weekly material, inviting people to think with me, but also it was going to eventuate in the book. But when all that happened, 2018, the tail end of 2018, all of 2019, and then starting into 2020, we had no idea that we'd also be in the middle of this global pandemic when I was finishing the actual book. So yes, it was a real time of shifting what we were doing at Three Minute Ministry Mentor and what I was doing in my teaching, what I was doing in all my conversations with my fellow scholars and with ministers themselves. Um, you know, there's no real way to estimate the impact yet that the, the coronavirus pandemic and then the chronic and multiple pandemics that rolled out in the, in the after, you know, while we're all sitting at home in lockdown, America, the United States of America starts waking up to its longer, deeper, more insidious pandemics. And these were not new ideas for me, but I think they were become they became urgent to everyone in a really powerful way. So I wanted the book, because of when it was being completed, to gather up as much of that learning moment that was happening in 2020, which is when I was finalizing the manuscript. Uh, and so I found ways to integrate sort of the counterpoints, the uh, the different ways that ministry was challenged and in some regards undercut by what happened during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and and I did that with a number of different chapters. So you'll, you'll find that woven into various places throughout the book. Um, but I also really want to address it right up front in that introduction, because I think that we, we have a, a very powerful moment happening and, and and by moment I mean a long cultural moment right now we're living in it which is to say it's been easy to just continue to train people for ministry in the 20th century and into the 21st century sort of leaning on the traditions that we have been doing for quite a while and those are very defined by the guilds when I say the guilds I mean <clears throat> the organizations that give authority to scholars. So seminary professors don't just get authority from the teaching in the classroom. They also get authority, we hope, from their own vocation and calling from God and also from their guilds. So if they're biblical scholars, there are biblical guilds that authorize their work. If they are practical theologians like me, there are several different guilds that publish my work, review my work, uh, say to the world whether I'm an, you know, a scholar of any notoriety or not. And the guilds have so formed and shaped theological education for so long uh, that they are constantly reasserting themselves. And it means that they, sometimes the teachers who are so shaped, we who are shaped by our guilds, forget that the life world that we are teaching for is the life world of ministry most of the time. That, that ministry might take a lot of forms. It might be congregational, it might be activism, it might be chaplaincy, it might be education, but we're training people who are gonna do the work of ministry, who are answering a vocational call, not just people who are gonna become professors like us. And that's a, a tricky, um, a subtle kind of shift that uh, people who are teaching in theological, theological education need to make, uh, 
but they're so shaped by it, it's hard for them to see. It's a little like the old, you know, showing water to fish. Um, so the way we talk about it in our, uh, in the book, I talk about it a little bit in the book and uh, other writings Chris Sharon and I have done, um, is that there's, there's a concern for knowledge acquisition. When you're going to seminary, you're going to acquire a lot of knowing, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, history, stories, theologies, etc. But what's important is that you also have a sense of knowledge use. What are you going to do with what you learn? How are you going to use it? How is it shaping you as a pastoral person, a person with pastoral imagination? And that is a question everybody across every guild who's teaching in seminary needs to be thinking about. Um, and they do and they don't. Some of them do it better than others. I'm also trying to empower students and ministers themselves uh, to be thinking that way and always asking the question in the seminary classroom, so what? <laughs> I just learned about, you know, the six major councils of this period of history, what difference does that make to how I'm going to do ministry now? How does that shape who I am? Or does it need critique? You know, there's a million questions to ask about, so what? How does one use what one is learning? Um, so those are some of the, the things that we're, we're up against when we came into this moment, this moment of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, the lockdown. And <clears throat> it's upended a lot of what people were trained in that wasn't really fully adequate. It didn't really equip them with a robust pastoral imagination for coping with something so out of the blue, so unprecedented as a pandemic, uh, a, a healthcare pandemic, and then all the other pandemics and so this is a moment where the church can be asking and, and its leaders, ministers, and theological educators should all be together asking, what are we really training people for here? What are they learning to do? How are they learning to do it? Can they be flexible? Can they be um, improvisational? It's one of our favorite words in the study. Uh, can they uh, pay attention to the situation and really respond uh, in the way that that acknowledges the holy and all the other shaping forces in that situation and bring a truly pastoral moment. Uh, and, and not like that's, ref that's reflecting on the person of the pastor, but is reflecting on the care and justice that the world needs so much. Yeah, a critical aspect of processing this book is understanding what you mean by imagination. And you're alluding to that earlier, but can you kind of help frame that for us? Yes, great question. I like to say that pastoral imagination is three different things. <clears throat> it is the name of the project that we've been talking about, the longitudinal study of people and how they learn in practice. It is also um, the book that I wrote. Pastoral Imagination is a book that came out in 2021 uh, with Fortress, and that's what we've been talking about, what's in that book. And the third thing, the most important thing, is it's a concept. Pastoral imagination is a concept uh, that was first coined a term. The phrase was coined by Craig Dykstra uh, in the late 90s and popularized most in his article that was in a book called For Life Abundant. And he wrote a, an article or a chapter in that book uh, about pastoral and ecclesial imagination, uh, how people and churches... Um, <clears throat> live in the world in a way that is responsive to the fullness of the world and the holiness of that world. Um, we we have gone further with this concept in a couple of different directions. Um, we connect it with phronesis, which is Aristotle's idea uh, of practical wisdom. So when we talk about imagination, we're not talking about that, that thing that uh, you often hear the word imagination and you uh, think, oh, well, can someone be creative? Can they think about uh, uh, some artistic or crafty kind of thing in a, in a cool or creative way? Th those are forms of imagination, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a habitus, a way of life, a way of seeing the world, a way of being in the world, uh, and that draws on the fullness of 
history and tradition and wisdom and theology and prayer. And um, we talk about it in terms of being embodied. It's a knowing, pastoral imagination is a knowing that is embodied, not just in your head, but in your whole self. Um, it's knowing how to sit, stand, be with people, stand in the pulpit, sit at the bedside, um, stand in the streets, protest and march, knowing not just how to move your body in those places, but how to take action for love and justice in the world um, or whatever your tradition that, you know, states it values most highly, um, because that can be a little different depending on whether you've been formed as a Catholic priest or a Pentecostal pastor or uh, a Methodist chaplain, you know, those, those traditions and values that shape you are a little different, but you still need a capacity for engaging them fully. Uh, it's also about relational knowing. We don't just do what we do because we learned it in seminary and somehow we know now what to do. Uh, we're in relationships with all the people that we're in ministry with. Uh, the person we pass on the street, the person who comes through the door of the church, the person in the hospital bed. We are in relationships constantly. And in those relational spaces is where the holy shows up so readily. And we have to be attuned to that. Part of pastoral imagination is being attuned to that and not being preoccupied. Now, it's a natural part of the process. When you're new at ministry, you're worried a lot about how you're doing. Did I do that right? Did I say that right? Did I mess that up? Is that person going to like come back after me? And, you know, uh, we worry about how we're doing because that's a natural part of the developmental process of learning an adult human practice like ministry. We also worry about it in things we're doing other ways, you know, whether it's playing chess or basketball or driving a car. In the early stages, you worry about how you're doing. But there comes a point uh, where there's a flip. And this flip is that you stop worrying so much about what you're doing, how you're doing, and you give your full attention to the situation in front of you. And you're able to ask yourself, what is going on here? What is the depth of what is happening? What are the psychological dynamics, the family dynamics, the political uh, forces, the uh, history that's shaping this moment? What is happening of God's movement? What if the holy is uh, uh, enacted here? And you have to ask yourself all those questions really, really rapidly because the situation may be looking to you as the pastor, you as the minister, the chaplain, the priest, the activist, and saying, what? help us, <laughs> you know, you're the, you're the one in the, in the leadership role. And so when you can switch your attention from worrying about how am I doing to what is happening here and how am I going to respond and not just personally respond, but gather the people to make the appropriate response, then you are embodying and enacting a fulsome, robust pastoral imagination. And with time that grows with a kind of patina it, uh, more shine, more, um, and it's not to say there aren't, we can talk about blockades as well. There are things that make this hard. Um, but with time, we, we've interviewed people uh, who are in the 25 to 30 year uh, range of their ministries. And um, yeah, their knowing is so almost unconscious about what they do. Uh, they do it and they do it beautifully, but they no longer think deliberatively about it. They simply enact it, uh, that kind of pastoral imagination if they're priests and ministers and pastors. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest serving health cost sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning sounds different it's by design join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs 
To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You, you wrote, uh, seeing ministry as a practice that is learned by trial and error through recognizable stages of growth and through many rounds of experience allows us to take seriously the reality that learning ministry is a lifelong endeavor and not a three-year process of seminary and internships. You know, most professions uh, outside of ministry required continued education hours in order to continue to be a prof- licensed professional um, in, in this area. Why, why not vocational ministry, and, and why should it? Yeah, that's a great question. And and there are some denominational traditions that are much more um, intent and robust in what they offer about continuing education. So it's I think there's sort of two prongs to the answer. One is, yes, could um, some denominations be more deliberate about providing continuing ed and really um, giving regular loops of feedback to people about how they're doing and how's it going and for sure. Uh, There's also just the simple reality that if you're in ministry for extended number of years, you are in a constant learning process. Now, if you lose your sense of things being new or something yet to be learned, um, you're stagnating in some kind of way that's not good for your well-being or the people you serve, probably. Um, And that's not so much a judgment as more on the person as like we have many situations that just are not, they're not set up to create conditions for you to be in a continuous learning process. To to be in that kind of process, you need to have feedback loops, as I already said, somebody telling you how you're doing, because you do need to know, even if you're not preoccupied with how am I doing, you still need to get some feedback. It's easy to feel defensive about that. But if you can approach it with an openness, this is about learning and my becoming um, more grounded in what I'm doing and serving this community, whatever community it is better, then you're much more open to that feedback. You need mentors. Those can be peer mentors. Those can be senior mentors. Those can be skill-based mentors. Uh, But seeking out the people who will give you uh, a sounding board and who will listen to your growing edges and give you honest feedback when you speak Uh, Not to judge you or critique you, but to be alongside you as you're learning. Uh, To be that person you turn to, because, you know, ministry can put you in some really crazy, ridiculous situations. (laughs) And you need, you need a, 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 what what one of my group, groups of friends calls themselves the advisory board. You need the advisory board. You need some people you can turn to confidentially and say, look, I'm up against this situation uh, in my congregation uh, or in my chaplaincy ministry or in my military service ministry or wherever you are serving. Uh, And when you have that group of people that you cultivate relational knowing with over time, they really can have your back and you don't feel like you are so isolated. Isolation is one of the worst things that people face in ministry. One of the hardest things they face in ministry where they don't feel like they have people that have their back or that they can consult with when they need to consult. Um, So I I think it's important for denominations as you're asking, or or ministry groups, there's all kinds of great centers in the different denominations uh, that do this sort of work. CBF has variations on it uh, with um, peer learning groups and whatnot. Uh, So that's important. 
having a culture that supports this is really important. But also individuals can say, I can create my ecology, my network of people I'm going to turn to when I need them. And now with the world so available to us through phone and Zoom and all the, the various ways we can connect, that's realistic. It's possible even if you live in Iowa or you know a very rural part of Mississippi or something, you can still find a network of people that can really be part of your sounding board and your uh, and have your back. Um, so I think it's both. It's a both and. We recently shared some time together in our collaborative work around CBF of North Carolina's Helping Pastors Thrive initiative. And at our planning retreat, we went down a really healthy rabbit trail of what seminary doesn't prepare you for in ministry. Um, yeah. You know, much much of what you covered in the book, whether um, equity issues, emotional intelligence, relational approach to ministry, practicing self-care, and on and on, uh, is just not things typically covered in seminary. Is, is this more of a need for seminaries to adapt their approach to teaching the practice of ministry or a need for ministers to continue their education post-seminary graduation or a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. And I'll say more, just a little more about both. Um, so I've kind of been talking about that. But you can think in a way of the, the topics uh, in the book uh, any one of them could be taught in any number of courses in a seminary. Like they could be a part of what one learns in any number of courses, a preaching course, a biblical studies course, a history course. So there's ways to fold in practice to all the whole curriculum of a seminary. And that is what I regularly am trying to help my colleagues in theological education think about how to do that. Don't leave all the integrative work to fielded professors and CPE, clinical pastoral education. Those are essential. We've got to have them. I'm not, I don't want to dispense with them at all, but don't leave all the work of integration up to them. You know, ask these questions of the use of knowledge in your course, no matter what it is, if you're a professor, you are helping students hang on to what they learn much longer by asking them to use it. And you are equipping them for thinking in the ways they need to think with pastoral imagination when they leave your institution. So seminary education, there's also some real big swaths of practical stuff. Seminaries are still not doing very well. And, and in my most recent round of interviews with uh, recent uh, grads from Austin Seminary in Austin, Texas, I heard again what we've been hearing for more than a decade, which is things around administration, finances, how to supervise people, how to manage buildings and facilities, how to um, read a spreadsheet, <laughs> just some really basic uh, functions of any organization. Uh, seminaries are still largely not doing an adequate job with that. They're also not giving students enough, this again, writ large, not just about Austin, but every, every seminary just about, it's, still struggles to give students enough chances to try on what they're learning in really practical ways. You know, you take a preaching class, you're going to get a chance or two or three to preach in that class. So the practical fields tend to do this better. Uh, in pastoral care, you're going to have probably some practicum hours of learning to listen. Uh, in a Christian ed course, hopefully you're going to have a chance to actually create some curriculum or a Bible study or uh, some kind of training and, and try it on with your, your peers. These are low stakes, low, low bar opportunities to practice ministry when there's not a church, you know, out there waiting on you to do something and, 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 and paying you every week. Um, so seminaries can do better in a, in a, in a many different ways. Um, also, the students, the new ministers, the ministers at any stage of their life and work can really start to grasp, hey, I am in a very long arc, as my friend Chris Sharon says, a very long arc of learning the practice of ministry. It had a beginning before seminary. It included those crucial years of intense learning, and it goes on through the rest of time. And, and then ask themselves, we, we can ask ourselves, what is it I need to know? How, what is it I need to learn? And who can I be learning this with? And there's so many different ways 
to do that. It's not limited to the seminary's continuing ed program. Uh, there's so many different ways to learn what we need to know uh, with the people we serve, not just so we can take it to them, but in partnership with them. That was one of the great things about the pandemic pastoring report was how much I could see this really crucial relationship between lay leaders and paid clergy in the congregational setting for doing work together. And there's desire on all sides to do that, but we can do better. Um, so learning is a shared enterprise uh, wherever you go from seminary to being in ministry 25 years, still learning and uh, doing that with a community. Well, let's shift to that uh, work, the, the pandemic pastoring report. Um, set the stage for us on how you conducted this research and, and who you interviewed. Yeah. Well, we had this ongoing longitudinal study. Uh, we'd started in 2009. We have a cohort of 50 people who went to 10 different seminaries across the country uh, from East Coast to West Coast in between. And periodically, <clears throat> we not only interview them in small cohorts of five people who graduated from a particular school, uh, but we also will send out a survey to all of them. We've surveyed them about a variety of things, pay, uh, salary, use of technology, um, health-related issues. And so we, we survey them about a variety of things. And we had just um, really begun the process of the 10-year round of interviews. So these are folks who've been in seminary and graduated at least 10 years ago. Uh, and they're in our study. And so we have ongoing relationships with them. But March of 2020 came. And of course, at the very beginning, everybody's saying, oh, well, maybe maybe two or three weeks, maybe a month, we'll be on lockdown, you know, and uh, that I could see that really wasn't quite the case. And I'm not trying to declare I, I had knowledge that we'd be where we are right now, almost three years later. I didn't. But it was clear to me it wasn't going to end immediately. And that was having some impact on people, my students, for sure. Uh, and then the ministers in our study. So I said, let's put together a survey, find out how folks are doing. Let's ask some questions about their concern levels, and then how they're taking care of themselves and how they're what they're learning, what's what maybe some hidden surprises or delights, some uh, struggles, challenges, griefs. And, and really the framework of that survey is uh, pretty, pretty connected to the Ignatian spirituality kinds of questions about consolation and desolation, um, which is not unfamiliar to what we do sometimes with our research and how I do my teaching. So we put together a survey not not a really long one. Um, sent that out to our folks. We're meanwhile uh, interviewing them. And then I decided, hey, there's another group I'm working with. I'm consulting and mentoring uh, with uh, pastors in North Carolina, as you mentioned, the Helping Pastors Thrive Initiative. And we decided to also send the survey to them. I did that in collaboration with the other mentors and with Scott Hudgens, the director Got the, those uh, surveys back, and then uh, some months later, um, we're thinking about what we're going to do with that. We're continuing. We, meanwhile, got funding to do the 10-year research, so we're really meeting intensely with uh, pastors in our LPI study. And then Austin Seminary approached me, and they had a Pathways grant from ATS, Association of Theological Schools, and wanted some help by asking me to interview their recent graduates. And I said, oh, I would love to do that. And can I also ask them questions that are on the survey we've been working with? They said, of course, and get permission from them to, um, you know, let me utilize that data as we're thinking about what's happening. Of course, this by this point, we're talking about uh, 2021. Vaccines have started to roll out, uh, but there's still a, a lot of upheaval and um just that summer in 21 and fall of 21, people were thinking, oh, we're going to go back to regularly scheduled worship and meetings and gatherings. And along came Omicron and it was, it was chaotic. That's exactly when I was interviewing the 50 plus folks from 
Austin Seminary, and wasn't just uh, their graduates, also a group, uh, a large group of lay leaders who were part of churches affiliated with the seminary. So I was really just really fortunate, actually, to have that invitation and some funding, additional funding to be able to interview uh, so many folks who were living right in the midst of the pandemic at that moment, making really hard decisions, feeling the severe kinds of loss. Um, and I had a team of uh, other Austin graduates who helped me with the interviewing. And uh, when I got through with that, it was uh, November of last year, um, got kind of all the interviews in the can. I was like, okay, we've got a lot to look at here. So starting through all that data and trying to suss out what was happening in the surveys, they all took the surveys and what was happening in our interviews. It was just increasingly clear as I wrote and wrote and wrote January, February, March, all through last summer. Um, there's been a, there's been a sea change. We're, we're not just talking about adjustments or pivots, that was everybody's favorite word, pivot, or, uh, you know, even, even um, adaptive change. I, I'm not sure that's adequate uh, as a metaphor for what we've been living through. So I've been using the language of a new era of ministry. I think we are in a new time. And of course, the people are, many people are still living as if the old time hasn't changed, but large numbers of people are living in like, what is happening here? What? so much is different about ministry and of course about life not just ministry but that's part of the point um so the pandemic pastoring report came out in september of this year uh well i should re-say that because you're not going to publish this till later right so uh this the pandemic pastoring report came out in september of 2022 and i try to gather up the major learnings that I had while interviewing and surveying more than a hundred clergy and lay leaders and giving a portrait of what it is to be living in this new era of ministry and the major questions it's raising for everyone as we do it. Let's talk about some of the findings. I want specifically zero into finding number five, differences in clergy and lay leader experience. Um, I don't, I don't think until I was afforded a break between ending at University Baptist Church of Baton Rouge and starting my role here at CBF North Carolina did I realize just how tired I really was. Um, I've always been an adaptable person. Um, maybe my wife mm -hmm. and friends would argue differently, but but I feel like, um, you know, I pivoted well and helped our church pivot well during the pandemic. But in many uh, congregants, they, they enjoyed the at-home, on-demand experience of spiritual formation and worship ministers were on the back end figuring it all out, taking yeah. on roles that volunteers usually filled, uh, worried about church financial stability, did double work, and dealt with the personal effects uh, of the pandemic. Um, talk to us a little bit about that specific finding. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways we got at it uh, through the survey. And, and they were kind of surprising. I mean, it surprised me because I just didn't realize fully how different the experiences were. It made sense as soon as I began to see what was there. Um, but what you were just touching on was a, a big part of it. The pandemic moment when we, in March of 2020, when things closed down and then the months and for some churches years following that um, of doing church in some virtual format. Uh, yes, lay leaders were a, were were in a place where they could and did. They, they it wasn't that they could because they wanted to. They're just they 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 took a step back from what they had done. Uh, and they one of the interesting things I learned in a couple of the interviews, pastors sort of walked at me through that, and they said, "Here's the thing: we had an ethical dilemma as pastors. Could we even call on our volunteers? Many of them." Uh, uh, older than 65, who were at severe risk of contracting a disease, a, a, a virus that could kill them. Could we do that? Could we do that? Ask them to take on more roles or come to the church house or 
No, we couldn't. We couldn't. We just ethically and morally could not do that. So therefore, the work, which shifted significantly in every place, still, as you say uh, earlier, um, became more work for the pastors and ministers on staff. So when we think about congregational ministry in particular, ministers took on so much more of the work and they did it not because they were feeling like superheroes or like they needed to be martyrs or any of that. They did it because need to be done and they felt a moral many of them an obligation not to endanger congregants meanwhile <laughs> congregants were having more of the experience of like oh my goodness i'm at home i can go to church in my pajamas and a coffee cup in hand and you know whatever and and they also had really beautiful valuable experiences of like having their adult or college-age children home or being able to um reconnect with their family in a different way and and some ministers had those experiences as well uh, for sure um, but but what revealed itself is as churches began to reconsider how are we going to gather in person again um, volunteers were out of the practice out of the habit many of them uh, certainly many volunteers stepped up and did huge amounts of work to put worship into a virtual format so there it's not like I'm not please don't hear me saying volunteers didn't do tremendous amounts of work. They did. Um, and pastors know they couldn't have done it without them. Interestingly, when I asked volunteer lay leaders, what did you need your pastor to know during this time? Like what was something you needed him or her to know about you or the church or whatever? What did you need your pastor to know? They might've known it or maybe they didn't, but tell me now, what did the, did you need them to know? And lay leaders gave the, the most common answer that they gave me was we needed our pastor to know how much we had her back. We needed pastors and staff people to know how much we supported them 200%. We need them to know we love them. So they said other things as well, like that my mother had cancer or that uh, in a more critical way, we heard a few comments from, from a few bits of feedback from volunteers about when there was protest in the streets and people were um, responding to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery, we did not need to hear a sermon about nature or something unrelated. We needed to actually have the cultural moment of our the life of our country addressed and it wasn't so we heard some critique as well but the bulk of the comments we got to that question were how much support lay leaders felt and how much love they felt for their ministers that's something ministers needed to hear because then on the other side ministers were overwhelmed and exhausted they didn't experience isolation the way lay people did they experienced exhaustion and burnout um so there were these differences in experience, I think are incredibly valuable for churches to sit down and talk with each other about how was it for you to live through this time? How was it for you to live through this time? Because it was not the same experience. And the more that we can hear each other or that they can hear each other, um, the more I think they can acknowledge and honor the grief of the period of time that we've just come through and with that being heard and seen in one's losses and one's grief makes more space for okay we've acknowledged a grief our grief we've honored our grief we'll find ways to integrate that into who we are and we can keep moving to be the church in this new era of ministry now that's one story, and I haven't even told the parallel story about what was happening with chaplains. Uh, and we only touch on it a little in the report because there's only so much room in that report. But chaplains also were really overwhelmed in this period of time. Also, I know a, a number of them who've experienced some burnout and are doing different work right now. So ministers themselves took on a real big burden of what work got done in this last um, two and a half years. Uh, women took the biggest brunt of all. And the way it worked for, 
for some women in, in my study and, and in the study overall was that it was so much that they had to step away from their ministry jobs. And it's yet to, to be told whether they will go back into them or not. Um, so there's a lot still to be learned about uh, the impact of the pandemic on, on women who are leading in ministry. You know, I have this unique role um, with, with CBF North Carolina, which I get to work alongside clergy and churches that are in time of transition. And one of the things I find myself coaching search teams on right now, uh, especially as budgets become uh, tighter, um, is to think of the intangible things that you can give your ministers to, to care for them, um, things that we learned from the pandemic. And so, um, you know, I just actually met with a search team last night and actually told them, you know, your personal handbook probably says you can give your minister two, three weeks of vacation. How about six? You know, and and what it might cost you is $150 honorarium to pay for somebody to come and preach on a Sunday morning. Um, but imagine the self-care practices that can be put into place. Now, it doesn't mean they need to take all six weeks off in a row. You know, you, you've got to negotiate those kinds of things. But what are maybe some other uh, things churches can do to better care for their ministers as a result of the pandemic? Yes, I love some of the suggestions you're making about how to support uh, ministers in some creative ways so that they can uh, do their work with a fuller sense of care for themselves and not a constant sense of self-sacrifice or uh, putting the work ahead of everything else like family or even one's own spiritual life. Uh, in fact, we need to be able to get those priorities in the right place. And it actually benefits everyone when we do. Uh, there's some sense if you like ask, make space for a pastor to really fully care for themselves or their family, that somehow you're going to get less of them or uh, be shortchanged as a congregation, and quite the opposite is true. Uh, the more that pastors feel uh, cared for and secure in their work and, and like their families have what they need, and that's in terms of compensation and time off and even childcare. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, it really makes them more available and more energized to do the work that you as a congregation have called them to do. So I think you were right on track with asking about things like more vacation. I just read a study and I don't have it open uh, here, so I'm not gonna be able to quote the title for you, but we'll put it in the uh, notes if you'd like uh, for your, your listeners. Uh, and it's that you actually, there, there's been a, a really important study that if you want to up your game when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the, the buzzword DEI everywhere about how we pay more attention to the diversity of our employees and our congregations and also the inclusivity and um, equity of what we're offering everyone. If we want to up that game, one of the things we can do is really pay attention to what people uh, who are often marginalized need most. So the example and big example in the article is women and particularly women of color uh, who are working in any organization, this is not just about ministry, but any organization um, really could use more support like vacation, making sure they're paid equitably and um, something as simple as childcare, making sure they have the childcare they need or that the organization even pays for that childcare. And what, what the outcome of this study was, when that happens, when those needs are met, people stay longer, they're happier, and they do better work. Now, it's really hard to argue with that. And it seems a little counterintuitive that if you give a little more that you're really going to get, there's this terrible mentality we have in the business world and in ministry world of thinking that if we give a little more to employees, somehow they're not going to give back more. And it's really misguided. Um, it, it's really, I think the churches have the, a, a wonderful opportunity to say, how do we fully embody our love of neighbor, starting with the people right here in our own organization? And how do we then 
not just embody, put it in practice, but then make this a culture of a place where that's what we do. We have a generosity of love for each other. And when we can do that and believe in that, it goes into all the ministry we do in the world. Um, I'm not just, okay. I'm not just trying to talk about the prosperity gospel here that like, if you give more, you're going to get more. That's, that's really not the, the equity I'm talking about. I'm talking about providing for people what their basic needs are. And if you're going to hire parents, men or women, moms or dads, uh, non-binary parents, you really need to be providing, making sure that they have their needs as parents met and not ask them to constantly put their needs for parenting to the side. Uh, they can't give you good leadership if they're constantly feeling torn about caring for their families. So I think that's a really basic and really uh, smart way to go forward. Uh, it's a benefit that's often overlooked or ignored, but can be really helpful. Kind of our last question gears around kind of looking towards the future of what the church is currently dealing with and what it's going to have to deal with, which is um, kind of the result of delayed conflict. Um, I know we talked about this recently. Um, you know, a great deal of my doctoral work is is essentially around um, organizational psychology and looking at it through a theological lens. Um, it's inevitable that when we are not in close proximity with each other, um, psychologically, we begin to um, lack empathy, uh, lack grace, um, and and lack um, you know the type of healthy communication that we have if we're around people. And so, in many regards, the isolation we experienced, um, the ways that we formulated our perspectives and opinions without really having to be in proximity with others that disagree with us, is creating. Um, heightened anxiety around an already divided church theologically and politically. So what's your advice for ministers listening to this as they think through, my God, there is a bunch of delayed conflict that's that's coming that, that I'm going to have to deal with? Yeah, I do try to address this uh, to some small degree in the report that I, I produced, uh, the pandemic pastoring report. And, and one of the ways I was witnessing in the people I interviewed, uh, this dynamic was that most churches, you know, have a psych, a life cycle of, uh, birth. You know, sometimes people are pastoring churches that were born 200 years ago. They don't, you know, it's, it feels very far removed, but churches have beginning and they have a life cycle, which is often rises and declines. And it's a, a sort of normal organizational life cycle. And, what happens and what no nobody really prepared me for in seminary at all, and I don't know anybody else who learned this in seminary. I do try to teach a little bit of it in my field ed courses when I'm teaching them, but um, is the idea that when you go into a decline, this organization, when you start that tip over the peak of growth and you, you start to lose either uh, the numbers of people or you start to lose uh, income or you start to lose perhaps uh, harder to uh, evaluate a sort of an influence in your community or impact in your community. When those little declines begin, and they're really a normal part of a life cycle of an organization, but what we do without recognizing that it's a normal part of the life cycle is we get into conflict with each other. And so that conflict with each other looks like it's about the things we're fighting with each other about, like you're not doing your job right or what kind of, we'd really need red carpet, not green, or uh, what are we going to do with that steeple that's about to fall off the top of the church? We, we argue about and have conflict over things that are happening in the congregation's life or some sometimes tangential things. Um, and those conflicts have a way of misdirecting the energy of the church and creating more decline because the conflict is erupting. So I, I, one of the things I postulate uh, as I put the, put the report together is that any number of churches were already in some kind of decline or another, because that was where they were in the life cycle. And if they were, the, the pandemic moment created an opportunity for people to put that conflict on the back burner and or hop on a shelf and just go into a survival 
mode. We're going to survive during this. What do we, what do we need to do to survive during this time? What do we need to do to make things work? And there were churches that had increases in attendance online, money, and other kinds of, you know, bits of growth because of the novelty of what was happening. And, and because they did it, they did their parts well, and they attracted people, and some of them managed to keep those folk all good. Those are all good, resilient stories. Uh, but that conflict that went onto the back burner or the top shelf, when people, when churches started to return, I, I heard stories about that conflict came back like a freight train. Um, and so one, one thing I would say to pastors who are hearing me say this, tell this story and saying, oh my gosh, that sounds like what I'm dealing with, uh, is to recognize the big picture of what is happening and not only find, not only allow yourself to be caught up in the little C conflicts that are happening about things that might not make you perhaps really wonder, could this really be, we're having a fight about this you know, um, and keep the, keep instead their attention on the big picture and narrating for their, the people that they lead, whether it's in a, you know, whatever kind of setting they're in, uh, as doing ministry, help, help folks see the narrative of the larger sweep of their organization and its natural life cycle and help them recognize and pinpoint, Hey, you know, we might have been in a moment where, our budgets had been decreasing for several years or our, you know, those are not the only measures, but those are the kinds of organizational measures that can make conflict possible. And then conflict is really just a symptom of the decline rather than about the conflict itself sometimes. Now, there are certainly real, real problems that people must deal with. I'm not dismissing all conflict as this, but often uh, this this framework can help people put in place what what is happening, and then it allows them to say if that's if this is our narrative, this is what we're dealing with. How do we ask the larger questions of what we need to hear each other, uh, and our vision for what we can be together, um, and how can we build some trust with each other so that we can. Um, find a sense of renewal because renewal is what churches have to do on a regular basis, uh, a regular cycle of renewal. And that means revisiting our purpose, our vision. Uh, You can use whatever words you want there, but we have to decide why are we here? What are we doing? What is God calling us to do? And have some really genuine conversations about that. And it might not be the things God has always been calling that church or that ministry to do. Uh, There might be something new in this new era of ministry that uh, churches need to hear. And that means also letting go of some older things. Uh, And then I I would add this one other piece of it. It, I I painted a kind of simplistic picture there, and I didn't really mean to about paying attention to the big picture questions will help you out of this moment. Along with that, really, I think you have to pay attention to what people are grieving, what they have lost in this last two and a half years. And some of those losses are very concrete. People have died. Uh, buildings have closed. Uh, situations have changed. There's real grief about concrete things. There's also a ton of ambiguous grief, which is hard to see, hard to name, and really needs our loving attention um, as a community of faith, as communities of faith. And that means hearing each other, making space for our grief, and ritualizing our losses. When we do that work hand in hand of paying attention to what we're grieving and also seeing the big picture of what we're doing here, what, what life is about for this congregation of faith. Uh, when we can do that work, both of those steps of work, I think we have a chance of uh, writing some new future stories for our ministries and for our uh, love and justice in the world and our participation in that. Our guest is Eileen Campbell-Reed. The book is Pastoral Imagination. You can stay connected with her by visiting EileenCampbellReed.org. Eileen, it's always a joy to be with you. Thank you for reminding us that as we go about serving the world and serving a holy purpose, we need to cultivate a richness of knowing about the world and ourselves. Absolutely. It's been a joy to be talking with you today, Andy. Thank you so much for some space for conversation. 
Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study, title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.